drove my car through the gates of the convent. And an old nun came, and in two folding chairs, we faced each other, and I poured my heart out. Mm -hmm. And she said, do you know what your problem is? And I thought, well, here it comes. And she's going to drop the axe, and I'm going to finally know this is it. She said, your problem is that you have no idea how holy you are. Welcome to Substance, not Psychobabble. I'm your host, Vanessa Landino. Folks, we have a very special interview today. This is David Thornton, and I'm going to say a couple of words about him in my own words, and then I'm going to introduce him in his own words. David is a friend. He's a colleague. He is someone that I go to for counsel and really advice and input in my profession. He's someone who I trust, which I think if you listen to this podcast, you know that that's not always the case in this profession. Uh, David is kind and he's wise. And today we're going to hear about his story of his own journey through spiritual abuse and spiritual healing. And to be honest with you, I was going to release this in January as sort of, you know, a new year perspective, but something in me is telling me that this needs to come out now. And so this will be our interview in December. This is David in his own words. He's a licensed clinical pastoral therapist, integrating interpersonal psychodynamic psychotherapy with an ear to spiritual struggles. Steeped in the Benedictine tradition of Lexio Divina and listening closely to the contemporary voices of James Finley and Rami Shapiro, he developed Lexio Intima, a meditative practice for couples seeking greater intimacy. An author, singer-songwriter, and passionate chef by the way, I have tasted the culinary gifts of David Thornton. A passionate chef, he lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his brilliant and beloved wife, Dr. Laura Kreiselmeyer, also a clinical pastoral therapist. Together, they have three adult children, three adorable cats, and a life of music, literature, and deep listening. Folks, this is a gift. This conversation was a gift to me, and I hope it's a gift to you as well. Without further ado, this is Dr. David Thornton. Okay. How are you? <laughs> I'm I'm well. Uh let's dive in. Tell us a little bit about you. I mean, I tell us a little bit about you. Tell us how the subject matter became important to you. I have been described as someone who's lived more than one lifetime in this one. Laura, my wife, Dr. Laura Kreiselmeyer, mm-hmm. thinks that I've lived and died several times. Um, and that's not an unreasonable way of putting it. I've um, I've been a professional musician and toured the world and sung in studios with um, Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant and mm-hmm. staged with Catherine Ciccoli and uh, Pat Boone and uh, stranger range of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I speak several languages. I've got three master's degrees and a doctorate. I'm certainly a lifelong learner. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also someone who's, who's, who's uh, made a lifetime of mistakes. So I am continuing to learn. Um, so, Good way to learn. Yes. Yeah. I love music. I love cooking. I love uh, deep conversations with friends. Yes, I have been the grateful 
beneficiary of the deep conversations and the music and the cooking on several occasions. So that's been a real gift to me. You're a gift to us. Oh, thank you. Uh, but how this became important for me is it is, it's not something I find interesting. It's my path. Mm -hmm. I came from a very dysfunctional family in mm -hmm. a fairly rigid theological system. Mm -hmm. uh, and wanting connection, not finding it in my family. When faith came alive for me, I dove in uh, deep. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, or fortunately, mm -hmm. the places I sought connection were not healthy. They looked it uh, from the outside, but... They probably claimed it. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly did claim it. Sure. But... Um, how shall I begin that? Um, I'll start by saying both sides of my family come from uh, deep church connections. My mother's side, most particularly, her father, my grandfather, was president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Mm. One of his sons spent his life as a Baptist pastor, another uh, as a deacon. Um, and a philosophy prof. Um, my great-grandfather uh, is said to have died in the pulpit. So there's a lot of a lot of uh, lifelong investment in mm -hmm. the church. Mm -hmm. My father's side less explicitly, but there was a lot of em emphasis placed on uh, working in the church. He had planned to be an overseas medical missionary. His life direction changed um, for some reasons that have to do with, with our topic. Mm -hmm. But uh, he was a, a doctor. Mm -hmm. I would say that he was also... Um, possible to consider him as a psychopath mm. um, and certainly a malignant narcissist. Mm. And I do not know how many uh, people he abused over the course of his life. Mm. So I came into a world where reality was skewed. I didn't know what was safe. I didn't know what was true, and I wanted to. I was a very curious, uh, excited young boy with a lot mm -hmm. of interest. Boy, a lot of interest. Uh, but home was a place of physical, emotional, sexual, uh, mental, intellectual, spiritual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was normal. I thought other people's families were like that. I didn't look at my family and say, this is different. Why this is wrong. I? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I thought all men were like my father. I thought all women were like my mother. My mother was a better woman than most women, I thought. Mm -hmm. uh, 
still think. Mm -hmm. But um, so when, let's put it this way, when I went to college, I left the church for a long time mm -hmm. and then came back shortly before I graduated mm -hmm. um, to really find my way. I thought I, I really did feel lost. I really did feel born again. I really did feel uh, in love with God. The problem was mm -hmm. um, the church where I did that was not uh, a very healthy church. Mm -hmm. How would I define that? How would I know that? Mm -hmm. um, I didn't until a few months after I left. Mm -hmm. The pastor of the church was defrocked for having multiple simultaneous uh, relationships with young college-age men in the congregation. Mm. Gratefully, that wasn't my experience. I just thought the same things looked odd. Mm -hmm. And things were, were odd. Uh, so there was a disconnect between um, what I was learning and what I could feel in the in the in the air around me. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Okay. So then I came back to Nashville and worked as a musician, did studio singing and um concert singing singing playing live uh, and became involved in a church uh, that was a very popular church um, and a number of people have come out having had an experience of a cultic intensity there mm -hmm. but that wasn't quite enough for me. So I moved to California uh, to, <laughs> to be part of a Christian discipleship group yeah. that um, I didn't realize it had so much in common with the church I was going to yeah. it didn't feel different, but it was um, a home-based prophet-led uh, cult, really. Sure. And I was there for four years. And in the course of those four years, I moved from excited to be listening intently to the heart of God to terrified that God was going to kill me. Wow. And uh, believing that for a number of years afterwards, I was pretty sure God was going to either drop a building on me or blank my consciousness out so that I would hit a a freeway abutment or another car. I'll come back to what happened next, which was the beginning of my path of healing. And I did not suddenly learn to find and adhere to healthy communities with the flip of a switch. Mm -hmm. I continued to remarkably find uh and be drawn to and to choose to to seek out um toxic spiritual situations mm 
toxic mm -hmm. theology. Does that help as a beginning? Sure does. So I do this because the, I, I love working with people who are in uh, a struggle because yeah. I know what it is. I know what it is to be afraid, yeah. confused, and not know up from down. Sure. Well, it certainly answers the question, how did the subject matter become interesting to you? It sounds like it has been your path, your life. Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about when I was going to release this podcast, and I just think it's going to be important that this comes out pretty soon. Um, and the reason why is we're entering into a new year. And this is also, for a lot of people, the holiday season. It's a very religious time of year, and either they have beliefs that they're practicing through ritual or, you know, religion, or they don't, or they've, this touches everyone. Everyone at some point has been in, to some degree, an unhealthy an unsafe, or even a toxic situation. And it, it just seems so pertinent that at the beginning of a year, at the end of a year, we talk about not just spiritual abuse, but what healthy spirituality looks like and what that would look like to embrace in our lives. But how would you define, and this is so broad, but how would you define spiritual abuse? What makes it abuse? How do you know when you're being abused? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. If we start uh, as Sting and the Police did, and not without, Let's do. <laughs> we're spirits in a material world. Yeah. Like Madonna said, I'm a material girl. That's fine, it's a good song. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Uh, the, the depth, the ground of our being is is spirit, and our spirits um, are eternal. They are housed in um, uh, matter that we experience very personally, and that is us. I, I don't. We're not. I'm. I don't think we are separate from our material being. Uh, and, but it's through our material being that our spirit has experiences, and it's in our material being that we experience spirituality. If yes. that makes sense. Spiritual abuse um, can take the form and include, and I think it has to, uh, physical, sexual, emotional, mental, intellectual. Uh, yes. Those are the, the entry points. Yes. But I consider spiritual abuse to be the weaponization of a person's system of faith. Okay. When a person's faith is um, weaponized against them. You know, um, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, gosh, I've heard these things said from the pulpit, this first one. I want you to go home and pray that God beat you up. What do you do with that? Or a girl who's being abused, being told by the abuser, no one will believe you. I'm a Sunday school teacher. Or a, a woman who said to her directee, oh, a spiritual director who wanted uh, to have an affair with her directee, I, as a mother, as a minister, and as a spiritual director, I tell you, you're making a mistake by not having an affair with me. Wow. You know, you and I have never gotten into this before, but I was part of a cult in college. Um, 
worldwide Christian fellowship, really heavy campus ministry, that kind of thing, but took plucked young people at a very impressionable and also a curious, open-minded time of their lives and put us in discipleship groups and blah, blah, blah. But I remember um, having a one-on-one meeting with like the leader of the whole they were called world sectors. Like she, she and her husband led like the Eastern coast of the United States and Africa. Like it was this huge group of churches and she was kind of over the whole thing. And they had this convention and they asked me to speak. And, you know, I practiced and I had my little speech. I had like 10 minutes. It was, she was at Madison square garden. It was in front of 14,000 people. It was this huge deal, you know? And I asked her afterwards, I'm like, so what did you think? You know? And I think I was 21 years old. And she said, well, I like the way you started, but by the end of it, I wanted to leave the room and throw up. <laughs> Those words, you know, I laugh now after so much therapy and so much healing work, but those words burrowed into me and became part of my internal monologue, my internal dialogue with myself. I internalized them that when I speak, it's nauseating. It's so bad that it could actually make somebody want to leave the room because they're physically nauseous, you know? And there were so many other things like that. I mean, I could go through list after list after list, but ironically, you and I have never had a conversation about spiritual abuse, but I spent six years in that church. Is it a church? I guess, technically. Um, And when I left, I was sitting on my bed in my dorm room. And I think I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I was sitting on my bed in my dorm room in Union Square in New York City. I was a senior in college. Well, I didn't leave yet. This was like the beginning of the end of me being in this church. But I remember having a thought in my head and it was the most rational thought. And I thought, well, I mean, if I'm this bad, I am contaminating the church. I am also contaminating the world. It makes more sense for me to kill myself and be gone so that I am not poisoning, you know, the church, the people around me and the world, like the world clearly would be better without me in it. And they had convinced me now, again, I I don't want to steal your thunder. We'll go come back to this, but I'd come from such a dysfunctional family where when you get into a situation like that, somebody says that to you, it doesn't hit you as egregious. Like it didn't, offend me. I was sort of like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> you know I, I was already beat up. I was already emotionally like so low and, you know, yes, I was loved in the ways that I was loved, but there was not a sense of being seen, known and respected in my family of origin. Totally so good. when people disrespected me in my adult life, I was like, well, makes sense. You know, so it's interesting. Um, but just to say, and, and those you, you listening out there, you have your own stories coming to mind of times where somebody just said something that pierced right through you. Yep. Um, so the weaponization of faith against the individual, yes. it happens in words. Certainly it can happen in direct words. You said something really interesting when you were in this church in, I think it was in California on the West coast. You said things looked bad. Or you said things looked odd. I'm sorry. You said things looked odd. And I'm wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit. Like what was going on in your gut? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? Because for those who are in spiritually abusive situations, a lot of us came from dysfunction or flat out abuse, which is what allowed us to be in these situations. What fires inside of us that lets us know, like, wait a minute, this may not be okay. Of course, we we may not listen to it. We may not 
speak on it or act on it, but what was going on inside you? It was odd for sure. Um, because I went from being part of a 500 to a thousand member church in Nashville to part of a home-based discipleship group of no more than nine people at any time. Um, we would attend different churches, uh, always asking the Lord to direct us to what church God wanted us to go that, to that uh, that week. But I went in right and enthusiastic and and came out distraught, at least. Sure. Uh, I did not have an internal sense of this is wrong. Um, mm -hmm. have a growing level of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, anxiety is unrecognized conflict. Recognized conflict can be dealt with, but if you can't see, mm -hmm. you know, is you're under threat. Mm -hmm. um, like you, the experience you described after your, your speech in Madison Square Garden, in the cult, I mm -hmm. was told a number of things at different times that I could not reject because, as you put it, they confirmed the early family experience. Mm -hmm. One thing was I was toxic to people and mm -hmm. I should never be with people. So I needed to figure out some way of living that minimized my contact with people. And I, yeah. I, I, I honestly tried to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Uh, I think a little bit of the penny dropped one day when I was talking with the prophet, who was a woman who was the mother of the, the house. Um, I, I didn't understand what her issue was with men. What, what was, what was so wrong with, this or that person and she leaned across the counter and hissed i hate men and at that moment my the floor collapsed because i'd given up my family i'd given up my friends i'd given up work i'd given up wow what was i to do that part of me i could not change right nor did you want to. I was so, I had become so convinced that there was something fundamentally wrong. I'd change that too, if I could, but yeah. I, I, I don't know if this is the right way to conceptualize this, but in, you know, in the addiction world, we talk about hitting rock bottom. What was that for you? I don't know if it's the right way to say it, but it's what good. eventually good. No, turned, good. turned direction and, and put you on a healing path instead of participating in it. Right. Mm -hmm. To his uh, eternal credit, the husband of the prophet finally kicked me out of the house. <laughs> it's it's not it's not uh, right that a a young man should be in this house with my wife with these other people in the cult. You need to you need to be out. Mm -hmm. Great, but yeah. I I didn't have the courage because I had been told verbatim. If I left without having repented, God would take me far from there and kill me, and mm. uh, no one would ever draw a, a line between my death and this and this place. So, 
I needed somebody to say, get out. So I got yeah. out. But having gotten out, I was, um, if anything, more distraught. So this was the beginning of the of the of the healing, and it's great. This was in Pasadena, California. Mm -hmm. I lived, and the cult was, and I found housing in another place. Mm -hmm. Because I had taken refuge in the Catholic Church for some time, mm. I could go into a Catholic Church and no one would talk to me and I didn't have to talk to anybody, but I could mm -hmm. feel embraced by uh, liturgy, embraced by song, embraced by prayer. Mm -hmm. I went to a retreat center in nearby Monrovia. Mm -hmm. It was the Passionist Fathers Retreat Center. Mm -hmm. They had rose gardens that I could walk through. And as I was walking through, I passed a door that said, if you'd like to talk to a priest, uh, knock here. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I met with a young priest. I don't remember his name. Mm -hmm. But I stammered out some of my confusion to him. And he said, you know, there's a nun you should go see. Here's her mm -hmm. contact information. So I called Sister Thomas Bernard at Loyola Marymount in LA and set up an appointment to go speak with her. Drove my car through the gates of the convent, followed the direction she'd given me, went into the building uh, indicated, sat waiting and an old nun came, and in two folding chairs, we faced each other, and I poured my heart out. Oh. I poured my heart out. Mm -hmm. And she said, do you know what your problem is? Oh, boy. And I thought, well, here it comes. Mm -hmm. I've come to the Mother Superior. Mm. And she's going to drop the axe. And I'm going to finally know this is it. This is mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. She said, your problem is that you have no idea how holy you are. <sighs> I howled. <gasps> I, I fell apart weeping. Wow. It was the greatest gift so unexpected. Wow. Mm. I just hope everyone listening just heard that. You have to hear that. Mm. The first 20 times I told that story, yeah. I collapsed crying again. Yeah. I was crying right now. You all can't see us, but we're, you can hear us. Now it's, now it's just that my eyes fill with tears and my nose clogs. Uh -huh. <laughs> but when she pulled herself together, I mean, when she pulled herself together, she was fine the whole time. <laughs> when sure. I pulled myself together. Sure. Uh, I mean, these people do this for us and then they just go on with their day and scramble eggs. <laughs> like these moments in time for us she gave i uh she gave me a list of 
therapists, and of spiritual directors. Oh, what a gift. Yeah. Yeah. And on the list of spiritual directors, she she said, I'd be willing to be your director. And I thought, um, thank you, but there's no way that I would go from a cult led by a woman to- That hates men. Yeah. That hates men. I just, I couldn't risk it. I couldn't risk it. Yeah, I would, yeah, I, yeah. I yeah. made myself completely vulnerable. But there was yeah. one name in common on both lists of Christian okay. spiritual directors, and that was James Finley. Mm who is uh, now part of Richard Rohr's wisdom uh, school, is um, one of his core teachers. So I called James Finley and, and went to see him. Not sure if I would see him as a director or a therapist. And he was open to both, uh, to either, but he said, I can't do both. I can be your therapist, which may include some direction, or I can be your director, which will not include therapy. Interesting. Yeah, it was a it was a helpful a helpful distinction, uh, which is which is true. If someone is getting yeah. spiritual direction, and it becomes clear that they need psychotherapy, they should be referred out. The yeah, same right. shouldn't do both. That's right. There's another uh, sense of clarity between what's what's the role of a spiritual director when you touch spirit and uh what's the role of a psychotherapist they can yeah. be integrated i integrate them yes they can and they can overlap but i think what you're saying is so important because in asking that question and in drawing that distinction what he was embodying was safe authority yes yes which you didn't have up to this point on the spiritual, I mean, I don't know your whole story, but what it sounds like is that you hadn't experienced intimacy, certainly with a man, emotional intimacy that was safe, right. where someone's checking their own ego, they're checking their own quote unquote power or authority so as not to inflict harm. That's right. That's right. Beautiful. That in, that, that's integrity. That's it. That should earn our respect. And and we and we pay attention to that when we're awake to it. But when we're not awake to it, we can be abused because people will use their authority in ways that are servicing their own ego. Go on. That's right. I worked with him for over a year. Which capacity did you choose? Can oh, you tell us? It was hard. I chose yeah. therapist. Nice. Therapist. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was brilliant. He saved my life. He Amazing. Was- yeah. I'm working on an article, it may become a book, about James and my experience with him because there there are so many parallels between the life that I lived and the life that he lived. Yeah. Um, I had no idea at the time. I've I learned wow. years piecing things together, and he's just published a memoir um, that revealed a lot. It's like, oh my God, no wonder he understood. No wonder he was safe for me. Yep. James has been a mentor the rest of my life at a distance, reading his books and sure. watching his uh, podcasts. And- sure. David, when someone comes to you in a therapeutic setting and they've been spiritually abused, because I, I mean, I'm just kind of putting myself in the, in the shoes of people listening to this right now. And I know that, you know, one of the most powerful ways to 
offer healing and to be a healing presence is to tell our story. So thank you for sharing what you've shared so far. From a healing perspective, I'm 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 a listener, right? I'm thinking to myself, okay, I, maybe I've been spiritually abused. Where do you start? What would you tell someone? Okay, uh, great question. First, I would say I don't tell this story, except very small pieces of it, to someone who comes with their yeah. trauma, because I don't want to impose my story on them. Sure. My my job, my honor, is to be present as a listener to help them understand their own life story. I know some questions to ask because of what I've been through. And I know how to pose some um, reflections that they may not have considered before because mm -hmm. of life experience. Uh, but this is, this will be the first time that, quote, the public will have mm. uh, an opportunity to to hear my story. So, David, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. My goodness, thank you. Here I am thinking this is just, you've told it before, and but this is not something you've told before. It took me 30 years before I began explicitly to unpack my experience in the cult. When I worked with James Finley, it was about my father and sure. my own experience of compulsion, compulsions and obsessions. But yeah. I couldn't name the cult. I was so frightened. Yeah. So, yeah, it takes a long time. What would I, what would, how would someone know they've been abused and, and yeah. what their steps of, um, that, what steps should they take? Yeah. It's tricky because I think for people who've been spiritually abused, the last thing they do is trust themselves enough to yes. know that even something is wrong. Yes. And that's probably true of all of abuse, but because of the gaslighting and the power dynamics and all of that, but absolutely in the realm of spiritual abuse, part of what makes spiritual abuse even possible is destabilizing the inner voice. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, it has happened. I'm working with somebody now who came in explicitly to work through um, issues of spiritual abuse, and there are others. But most often, people will come in with personal anxiety, uh, conflicts, addictions, um, mm -hmm. more explicit and obvious trauma, physical, sexual, emotional. Yep. But it's only in the course of the conversation that we yeah. begin to talk about what underlies that, what made that possible. Why did mm -hmm. uh, they put themselves in a position to repeatedly experience this? Yeah. And why is it, do they think that they keep finding themselves uh, experiencing some abusive behaviors? And at one point or another, in one form or another, what comes to voice is, well, this is what I've always known. Yeah. 
this this makes sense as part of my story. Yeah. And why is that? You know, so yeah. Get underneath that part of the story as well. Yeah. But if somebody knows they've they they are experiencing spiritual abuse, I would I would so hope for them that they would find someone who's comfortable talking about spirit, uh, someone who's done a lot of their own work, someone for whom this is not a matter of interest, but a matter of life or death. Maybe. Yes, yes. I, I know respected elder therapists in the community uh, for whom spirit is, is um, well, that's nice, dear. <laughs> Yes. You know. Um, yes. Things yes. of the spirit are not are not taken seriously. Uh, yeah, and let's talk about that too, because in that moment, the therapeutic space becomes unsafe, and the subtext is: I'm either older, I'm wiser, I'm more educated, and your naive, simplistic, magical way of seeing yourself is, I mean, what they're implying is it's a defense mechanism. It's just part of what you do so that you can deal with the world. And for spiritual people, it is reality. Well, now we get into really deep water or murky water or both, because on the one hand, I disagree with with Freud, who, who sees uh, religion as a, uh, a neurosis. Sure. Um, and there are uh, strong Freudian, brilliant people who see religion and spirituality as neurosis. And it can be. I mean, it can yeah, function that way. There is naive spirituality yes. that leaves a person, left me, wide open for abuse. So what is healthy spirituality? Um, how does How can a person... A client be assured that when they come into a therapeutic space, their spirituality, at whatever age it is, whether it's uh, naive or or adolescent or fixed, uh, will be honored. Yes, uh, that's the kind of therapist I would hope a person who yes spiritual abuse can locate. You know, one of and this sort of, let's just keep going with this threat. Looking back on my spiritual life, you know, and one way that we can talk about this as therapists with clients, I think, is, you know, your spiritual story. Like, what is your story with, quote unquote, God or religion or your faith? You know, looking back through it all, you know, I was raised Adventist, which is just strict. It's, some people think Seventh-day Adventism is a cult. I don't think it really meets the, the criteria of a cult, although I think it was at one point, but it's just so diluted at this point. But it was so strict. I mean, there's so many rules. We basically lived in many ways a Jewish lifestyle, but we were, you know, believers in Christ. Both. And I was very glad to leave the Adventist faith when I became um when I went to college, because it was just so weird, you know, it was also just so weird to go to church on Saturday and not be able to go out on Fridays. Like I was so socially conscious of the, you know, the ramifications on my social life at that time. But I look back and then I look at, you know, I spent one year in college, my first year just partying, um, 
or my God, the stories. Anyway, we all have our freshman year stories. And then my sophomore year, I meet this campus minister. I get rebaptized because my first baptism didn't take, um, you know, <laughs> because I wasn't baptized in their church. Go ahead. I'm a double Baptist, so yeah. I get yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doubly, doubly saved, doubly real. Um, <laughs> so so then I, I I go through this, you know, whole Bible study where they basically convince me using the Bible that I was never a Christian and that, you know, I have to start from scratch basically. And so there's the destabilization of everything you've had up to that point, right? That nothing counts, nothing counted until you met us. And one of the places of real, I, I believe, and I don't want to, you know, overstate this about myself, but I do believe that it's been a place of maturity in me is seeing value in every part, you know? And so the Adventist faith as fundamentalist as it is, I did learn spiritual discipline. I did learn you know, not to be afraid of reading the Bible and digging into it. And, you know, Adventists really encourage that. And so I look now at the confidence I've had approaching spiritual texts and not feeling like, oh, that's overwhelming. I wouldn't know where to start. I was raised in a church that says, just open it and read it. You have to read it, you know. So I look back and that's just one example, but I can see so many advantages that I got. And then even in the cult, I see how God was still present. God was still there. And so when a client comes to me at whatever stage of faith they're in, you know, whether we're looking at, you know, ROAR institutionalization, you know, deinstitutionalization, like the three stages of, you know, um, or construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, you know, all of these ways of understanding the spiritual path. I think what's so dangerous for people in therapy is when they go to therapy and they have any experience from a therapist that it all resembles like nothing counted, nothing mattered. Everything had value. Everything ultimately, you know, the way that I used to say it is sometimes you have to learn who God is not to learn who God is. And I did learn who God is not. And I had to leave all of those quote unquote gods behind to come into what I would say at this point is a mystery that I love and feel very safe with. You know, know? interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say two or three things to that. Yeah. One is that it's it's a puzzle to me how it is that at no point in my life did I ever not think there was a God. There was no point in my life when I was furious and rejected or uh, mm. where were you? Or mm. I could... what shifted for me what took mm-hmm. a long time to get to yeah. was how what was the nature of god what was the heart of god what was the character of god yeah. it was possible for me particularly in the years of the cult to conceptualize that mm-hmm. god uh uh i'll put it delicately was a mean mofo yeah <laughs> god could uh be loving and also yeah fiercely destructive those two were not incompatible Um, and i think one of the dramatic turning points for me when i had a a crisis which i'll define right now as just a turning point i went to uh, 
a monastery in the high desert above Los Angeles, full of anger at God. And I marched deep into the desert, far from where anybody could hear me. And it was getting hot. I was taking my shirt off. Don't take your shirt off in the desert sun if you've got red hair. Just don't do it. <laughs> so, uh, but I screamed at God, waving my fist at God, and I was not destroyed. Wasn't destroyed. So God is everywhere at all times. Uh, I've come to a rock solid sense that uh, all of all of our experiences are useful, and my experiences and your experiences of spiritual abuse are useful. Yes, but they crack our hearts wide open for yes. us going through some things. Yes, I remember visiting. Um, a therapist in New York. It was one therapy session and I, he didn't give me this assignment. I just came up with it and I made two columns on a piece of paper and I drew a line down the middle of a blank piece of paper. And on one side, I wrote the lies, just the lies I've been told about myself, about God. It took years for that to integrate. But I remember at the time, like I have got to get organized I've got to start separating out what was not true. You know, I am not contaminating the earth. I am not so sinful that my heart is black. I mean, if anybody uses this passage of scripture again, well, the heart is deceitful of, above all things. Like, oh my God, <laughs> this is just weapon. Again, it's weaponized against us. And I remember, and this was not even... I would I love your definition of a crisis. It's a turning point. If you take nothing else away from this podcast, but that definition, and also don't take off your shirt in the desert if you have red hair. Look, you've you've spent your time well listening to this episode. Okay. People, Congratulations, everyone, all of you. Yes. Yeah. Well, don't ever say that you don't learn anything on this podcast. <laughs> you know that that right there is worth a five star review. Um, shameless self promotion. But I remember just trying so hard. And like at the time I get, you know, we can, we could Enneagram it all day long, but I'm such a four and I get so lost in my feelings and I, my brain goes to, okay, systematize it. What is true and what isn't? And I, I have that document somewhere. I would love to go back and read that because my heart, my soul was trying to get to truth. And I, again, like, I look back and I see the value in that. I respect her. Now I had been taught at that point, and this is so funny that, you know, black is black is, and white is white and things are divided neatly into columns and you just need to, you know, and so I was using, and I've, I've said this many times when I've talked about spiritual abuse and spiritual healing, that we can leave dogmatic systems, but not leave dogmatic thinking and still think in the way we've been taught to think, but in a much more broad-minded way. And we see that all the time because people can become dogmatic about anything. And this sort of comes to an interesting question, you know, that we, you and I exchanged um, questions and thoughts before we wrote this, before we recorded this podcast. But one of them was, can you, be, can you be spiritually abused if you don't believe in God? And I believe you can, for I'm, sure. I don't know people's uh, political perspectives who tune into your podcast but all over I th the map i think um we are in a political moment we're in a global moment where we are all 
experiencing some degree of spiritual abuse because of the yeah. gap, because of the, the calling into question of what is fundamentally real and true and reliable. Yeah. Um, I, I, I work with a wide range of people. I've had Wiccans, Jews, Buddhists, mm -hmm. um, Catholics, Protestants, duns, nuns. Mm -hmm. But I think everyone has a sense of however they define it or think of it, think of it, a higher power. Yeah. Um, and can that higher power be weaponized? There are people, God bless them, I wish I were one of them, who have such a strong internal sense of agency, autonomy, that they are not mm -hmm. de, uh, destabilized. They're not destabilized. Mm -hmm. Lucky them. Lucky them. Yeah, yeah. But that's not that's not my... Uh, no, it's not mine either. I'm too hungry for it, you know, and that sometimes works against me. I crave beauty and truth and sort of the spiritual dimension. And so I've really had to learn how to have a filter <laughs> on what I engage with, um, you know, to that end. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this and you can just expound upon it. But I remember, you know, I actually did move away from any kind of faith after I left the cult um, I did shake my fist at God. I literally stood in Union Square Park, which is, this is ironic, but I put my hand up to heaven and I said, do not come after me. I'm done with you. Just funny. because I'm like speaking to God saying, I don't believe in you anymore. You know, I was young. And so I remember, and, and I didn't, I mean, for years, I was very agnostic, almost atheistic. I read everything under the sun. I read the Bhagavad Gita. I read the Upanishads. I mean, I just read everything and I was still seeking, searching truth, you know, all of it. And I remember coming back to a place of faith, not at all what I had been raised in, not based on fear, but for the first time in my life, finally, based on love. And I remember having a conversation with this really, really beautiful couple. Um, he's a pastor. She's a psychologist. And we met at a conference and they just sort of loved on me. They really did. And I remember having dinner at my house with them once and telling them some of my story and weeping, you know, these are just the mentors that are put in our lives to help us get to the next step. And I remember, um, Sherry Tilly is her name. I don't think she'd mind me giving her credit for this on this podcast, but I remember saying, you know, my story and just the fear I had that, you know, what if I'm walking down the same road? What if, what if I get hurt again? You know, and she looked at me and she said very simple words, but I will never forget them. She said, Vanessa, God will never abuse you. Like. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> you don't know how holy you are. I mean, it's just one of those moments where you don't go, oh, that's the essence of it. That's the essence of it. Yes, there will be hard times. Yes, I will struggle, blah, 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 all of that. I've just been through a dark night of the soul. My miscarriage that I went through this year, you and we've talked about this, but it was a true crisis of faith. I have never been a why God, why me kind of person. And this was the first time in my life I ever said, why? You are the author of life. Why do you keep yanking it out of my womb? I mean, it just, and I had to face square up with my anger and my 
disappointment and my unanswered prayers. And I won't go into it, but the, the process back to intimacy and safety again was beautiful. And my dog, Jasper, was no small part of that. God uses all things. But I remember those words, Vanessa, God will never abuse you. Because what I was tempted to believe at that time was you're just messing with me. Like you tell me to believe all of these things, but that's not actually the nature of who you are. You're messing with me. And I had to remember, no, 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 wait, God will never abuse me. I actually do believe that God will never abuse me. So how do I work through this and not feel manipulated, lied to, betrayed by God? And it was I mean, again, it was a beautiful process, deeper and longer than we need to get into here. But tell me about that, those words, God will never abuse you. You've heard so many stories. You're such a seasoned therapist at this point. What do you hear when you hear that? I hear Anna Maria Rizzuto's birth of the living God, Mm. that our conception of God is formed by our earliest life experiences, long before we're verbal we are stamped by an experience, uh, a, a gestalt, a Weltanschauung, a real global, all-encompassing, this is the way the world works. Yes. And if that gestalt, if that Weltanschauung is mm-hmm. of uh, an unpredictable, uh, cruel, um, sometimes generous, sometimes... Uh, stripping almighty, that's who we think God is. But when we can ground ourselves in whatever way works and get centered in a calm and peaceful place, hopefully with support, yes, so that we can come to believe a minute at a time, to several minutes at a time, to an hour at a time, that God is good. God is love. You know, in in, uh, one of the Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe books, it's asked, is is God safe? No. No, he's not safe. That's right. What a great line. He will never abuse you. That's, That's the truth. God will never abuse you. God will never abuse you. People might. People people might there are yeah. quite a few you know and they may do it in the name of god but that oh. is not god that is not the nature of god uh saint john of the cross wrote all of his books out of his experience of deep abuse by uh his fellow monks and priests mm. he had um left the carmelites to join teresa of avila in uh, reforming the Carmelites, the order of Carmelites discalced. That means mm-hmm. no shoes. That means we're going back to the basics. We're going back mm-hmm. to poverty. We're going back to uh, a deep devotion. Mm-hmm. That was not taken gladly by mm-hmm. the priests who had um, shaped him, educated him. And so he was kidnapped, put in a mm-hmm. cell in a monastery. And every day for Six months, nine months, long time. He was taken out of his cell. And for the length of the time it takes to intone the psalm that begins, out of the depths do I cry to you, O Lord. Mm. 
he was beaten with a cat of nine tails. They're chanting the song out of the depths, do I pry, cry to you, while he is being beaten. And back into his cell he goes. And out of that, his dark night of the soul, he yeah. writes the most beautiful mystical language of union with God, knowing that God doesn't do this. You know, years ago, I remember um, one of the women I met in the cult, she was actually, um, we are still in touch, though very loosely. And when we reconnected after many, many years, I told her that you were the only person that didn't abuse me. You were the only one. But interestingly enough, she pointed me to the poetry of John Donne. And I love John Donne and I love the sonnets, but they're all very spiritual. And I remember reading um, a sonnet. I don't have the whole thing memorized, but it starts, batter my heart, E3 person, God. And the whole sonnet is about, um, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes if anybody wants to read it, but it's basically about like, break me open. There's a yearning in the writer and John Donne for the experience of God and the presence of God. But the way that he writes about it is overcome my will, overpower me. And I loved this sonnet for so long. And this is, again, the mindset of someone who has been abused. I mean, I was literally beaten into submission, literally with a leather belt. And so when I read batter my heart, you three person God, you know, the, 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 the sonnet is so humble. He talks about like, my will is too strong. You're going to have to sort of beat it out of me. And I remember reading this to someone who just had a more enlightened mind at that moment, had more awareness. And he said, Vanessa, this is the language of abuse. And I felt so seen and safe in that moment. And I also felt really sad. It's like, you just, you ruined my favorite sonnet. <laughs> I love this, and I still no, do. I still it's interesting. Um, I, I, I have to agree with your friend. Yes. Lucky John Dunn, who apparently knew such safety and security that he developed a, a hard, uh, unchallenged will. And he knew that he needed, he longed for uh, an openness to God that he didn't naturally have. If I hear your story right, and I know my story right, we were cracked open early yeah. and it repeatedly cracked open. Yeah. I, I do not, I don't hear that in Dunn's poetry. It is beautiful. I, I know the one you're referring to, yeah. but I also recoil from it because it's way yes. too. Yes. And so, you know, we could see it. And again, in the black and white world in the, in the black and white thinking, we could say, okay, well, no, you know, but I, I look at it now we could dismiss it in other words, but I look at it now and I think, my brother, John, I understand you. I understand when you are at a point in your life where you think that the only hand of God is heavy handed. And you don't know the gentleness of God and you don't know the whisper that does, I think, so much more than the heavy hand. And so, again, I think there's value in all of those places, you know, and when we talk about God and we talk about the spiritual journey, I think what we're trained to do is decide, well, what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad. And there is a stage of growth where God, we perceive, or we accept, or we believe that God is heavy handed. And sometimes I think it feels that way. Um, 
and who am I to say, I don't know the nature of God, not, you know, maybe there, maybe there's truth in that, but I think that yes, is it the language of abuse? Yes. And also I'd still love to sit across from John Dunn, have a glass of wine with him and say, tell me about God, you know, and share in the humanity of misunderstanding and then relearning and unlearning because the spiritual path is anything but linear. I would, um, I'd respond to that this way. Mm. I, I, I learned in the monastery where I was an oblate, kind of a a lay member, the practice of Lexio Divina sitting with texts and letting them ring inside I would, I would, um, I've learned that I'm sensitive enough and I, that's not a, a, I'm not boasting. (laughs) I'm vulnerable enough that I have to really be careful what I read, what I want, listen to. Yeah. Um, Done that poem particularly at certain points in my life and maybe at certain points of the day make me recoil because yes. it's, um, it's too uh, inviting of the kind of abuse that I've known from yes. pastors. Yeah. Yeah. And some therapists, you know. Sure. So I would say a person that this is the thing you asked earlier. Yeah. About uh if someone has experienced spiritual abuse, how would they know? And how difficult it is for a person who's been spiritually abused, spiritually abused, to attune to their own inner core. If they feel unsafe, back up. If they feel unsafe, back up. Yeah. No one but the person has the right to uh, say what is good or healthy for them. Yeah. Uh, I, you know. Uh, if someone came in uh, spouting John Dunn, sorry to flog him, I would okay. say, "Great, how's that working for you?" You know, tell me, tell me how that reflects your experience of God, and if that's life giving, great, great. Yeah. Well, and this is, I think, therapeutically about trusting the process. Yes. It's about being safe for them. And in that safety, the the brain, like the humans heal beautifully, naturally in the presence of conditions that invite healing. We naturally go, well, wait a second. That, that doesn't feel like what you just did for me. Like what you're saying right now, David, I could cry. Like if you feel safe, back up. Yes. Because I'm sorry. Yes. If you feel unsafe, back up because again, and this is a personal statement about my own faith, but the God that I believe in, first of all, is okay with you backing up, taking some space, taking a breath, because God will never abuse you. God is safe. And if somebody wanted to back up away from me, and I've done this in session with people who have been abused, if I've got a large enough office, I've actually done this. Like what distance do you need to be away from me to where you feel safe? If I'm a human being, and I intuitively want to give somebody an experience of safety, how much more so God? And what a beautiful thing to say. If you feel unsafe, back up. It's okay. Yes. Because what we hope for in a therapeutic room is that the therapist isn't going to go anywhere. 
And the other uh, thing, what is the, what's the course of healing from spiritual abuse? It is long. Yes. I've heard the expression, you cannot push the river. The river flows at its own pace. And we come to where we are in life, not in one day, not by one incident, but by an accretion and accumulation and aggregation yeah. of things. It takes a while. Yeah. And for us to be patient enough to know that it's okay to back up if we're feeling frightened, if we're feeling destabilized, that's exactly what we need to do. That yeah. is increasing the healing. Slowing down is speeding up. Yes, because it's not about, quote unquote, doing it right. It's not about the outcome. It's not about fear. It's about relationship. Yes. And myself, after the miscarriage, I don't know that I felt unsafe. I felt abandoned. Mm. And I did back up. And, you know... This is a tangent, but a 10-pound puppy <laughs> brought me to my knees, literally. Um, and when it became safe again, you know, the spiritual abuse in some ways feels far behind me. Um, when I pray, I do a lot of listening, and the voice that I hear is so kind and so respectful and calls me child in the most loving way, you know? And so I knew, and this is that healthy attachment. I knew that when I'm ready, <laughs> that there is no anger, there is no punishment. There is no, there's nothing negative waiting for me. There's a safe place to go back to. And I knew that, and I knew it in my guts. So I had the room to back up and take time and take space and come back. And I think when we've been spiritually abused, and this is, this is, this is probably the worst, maybe, maybe I don't want to overstate it, but the worst part of it, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. And so what you're saying right now, and you know, if you've more thoughts about this, I, I know we've been at this for a little while and I don't want to take up too much more of your time, David, but what you're saying right now, just if, if you hear nothing else today, besides don't take off your shirt in the desert with your red hair, um, if you feel unsafe, back up. What a gift. I would say two things to you. I think God came to you in the form of a 10 pound puppy. Yes. And all the, the limbic resonance that um, uh, a good pet, a good uh, yeah. animal partner, cat or dog, or if you're yeah. lucky and brave and rich, a horse. Um, <laughs> to have the direct feeling presence of another being yeah. is very healing. Yes. You um, said nowhere to go. Um, with my supervisor, I talked about uh, the worst part of any mental illness or, or psychological trauma is the feeling of being alone. He said that's what Anton Boysen, who was really the, the father of, of uh, clinical pastoral therapy, mm -hmm. said. It's when we feel alone and cut off from, from, from reality, all others, all hope, that's, yeah. that's desperation. So 
lucky those who, lucky us who found good therapists and good uh, counselors, lucky those yeah. who find them. And if God comes in a 10 pound puppy, he comes in a 175 pound therapist. He comes in, right? It, that is the trust. I think that those of us who know the love of God have that he will find us. God will find us. Yes. And I would say to anyone who's looking for help, um, it is as important to uh, take your time finding a good therapist as it is to uh, take your time finding a good pair of shoes or jeans. Don't yes. With the first pair you find. Um, That's right. Trust your, trust your gut, trust your sense of fit. Yeah. And, um, Which is part of healing is learning how to trust the inner voice again. Yes. Yeah. Biggest part. Yeah. Yeah. Any other, I mean, David, I could be here for three hours with you. You are so rich. Any other thoughts, any other random tidbits of advice? <laughs> uh, so many thoughts and not been able to, to marshal them uh, into our conversation. Uh, I'd, I'd love to have another conversation with you at another time, but this has been Can really- Can we do it? Can we do a follow-up? I'd love to. Okay. Yeah. Then let me ask you this. While this is so fresh and you, you have thoughts, jot them down, please. And then next time you just lead the conversation. And cause I think, I think this topic is too important. It's, I mean, you, you said this in the first 30 seconds, it's the ground of being, is that Tillich? Yes. That phrase, the ground of being like, this is to abuse somebody spiritually is to existentially assault them. Yes. And to heal is to existentially stand up again. Yes. And so this is so important. I believe this deserves another round. So let's call this part one. Part one. Part one. And we will revisit it. This has been a true honor. Thank you for blessing us with you and your story. I think it's been very healing for me to be able to have. This is what one of the things I wanted to say. I've done a number of presentations on spiritual abuse and healing is a very different thing to have an extended conversation about it. It's much more vulnerable, much more um, tender. And so thank you for letting me have this conversation with you. Thank you for being willing and being here right now, having this conversation. This moment is a gift. It is. I will never forget it. It's in my soul right, right now and it will stay there. Thank you. Much love to you, Vanessa Bentley. Much love to you. Okay, we'll talk soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you, David, for your heart, for your wisdom, and for sharing everything you just shared with us. This will wrap up this year of interviews and this episode of Substance Not Psychobabble. Folks, I've received so many emails from you, the listeners, about the group, the Naturopathic Psychotherapy Group, starting in February. If you want more information on that, just click the link in the show notes. That's going to come directly to me. That's an email link. It's going to come directly to me, and I will send you the information that you need. We've got several people who are really interested in the group. It's going to start in February, run for 12 weeks. I can't say enough about how important I think this is. You need to know how to maintain your physical health. You need to know what the elements of physical health are. You need to know how to eat for your body. You need to know what 
kind of exercise your body wants, right? You need the basics of how to build and maintain physical health. You need the basics of mental health. You need to understand how you work from the inside, what you need, how to meet your own needs, how to work in your community, in your support system to meet your needs. This is how you build and maintain mental health. That's what the whole group is about. So give yourself the opportunity to learn how to do that over 12 weeks in 2024. Three things, okay, that I want you to do if you like this podcast, if Substance Not Psychobabble has spoken to you in the year 2023, will you please subscribe, give us a five-star review, and write a review. Folks, I can't thank you enough for being part of this community and part of this audience. And remember, your sole work is to discover who you truly are. I think today's interview just gives us another layer of inspiration to do that. Discover who you truly are and learn how to love that human being. Till next time, this podcast is recorded in Nashville, Tennessee and edited by Jared Bentley in Budapest, Hungary. I am Vanessa Landino and you just listened to Substance, not Psychobabble.